from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start with verse 14. In your Blue Shed Bibles, it's at the bottom corner of page 1067. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come and the old has gone because the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled himself to us through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Mars Hill. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Kyle Lake, and I serve as the pastor to our high school students and as our family life director. Uh, it's so good to be with you all this morning. Let's begin with prayer. Oh Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light upon our path. 
May uh, these words here in your scripture illuminate for us a vision for a new life and a new reality for ourselves and for our world. And we pray these things in the word made flesh, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, earlier this year, I was faced with a decision of great trust. Uh, do I click on the, I think you'll like this recommendation from Netflix? Now, uh, normally, I decline such propositions from Netflix. You don't know me, Netflix. You can't put me in a box and categorize me with this show or that show. But I had a moment of weakness. And I clicked on the show Formula One, The Drive to Survive. The next thing I know, it has been several hours. The family has gone to bed well past when they should have gone to bed. And I have done extensive research about this strange, mysterious, and incredible world of F1 racing. And months later, I am still reading F1 news, checking in on the races, texting my brother and sister-in-law who have been gripped by this story and this sport as well. It has gotten so bad that uh, earlier this summer, I was at a wedding where I saw some people that I haven't seen in over a year. And after the sort of like, hey, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Have you seen this show on Netflix? It was the story that I couldn't stop talking about. It gripped me. What story has gripped you? Here in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, we have perhaps Paul's most vulnerable and revealing letter. Because it is a letter where he talks about himself more than any other letter. And I think that's for good reason. Because he has a deep relationship with this particular small group of people. This particular church. He's visited them several times. He's written them several letters, perhaps even more than what we have. And he writes to them saying, I would have loved to come and visit you again. But it would have been painful. Because there has been some broken trust between him and this particular community. And it's a broken trust uh, that is different than the broken trust between him and the Galatians. In that respect, he begins his letter by saying, you foolish Galatians, because they've chased after a different message. But here, in this letter to the Corinthians, he talks about himself, because they have rejected him as a person because of what they see, because they've taken their cues from the surrounding culture. And so for these first five chapters, he's laying out that it's actually to their benefit 
that he is weak. That it's actually to the benefit of his message, the benefit of the good news that he is weak because in that Christ is proclaimed. That it's actually Jesus who they are to look to. And so he says this beginning in verse 13. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ's love compels us. This idea of compelling in the Greek has this underlying meaning of to hold in one's grip. To hold in one's grip. What Paul is saying is that the love of Jesus, this story that he is so convinced of, that one has died and therefore all have died, has so taken hold of him, so gripped who he is that he can only respond in one way because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Because it is so decisive that it determines his very existence, determines his very life, determines who he is. And so he has this, this new vision for who they are to be as a people. New vision for who he is as a person and what it means to see other people. He goes on to say, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in that way, we do so no longer. What Paul is the reminding the Corinthians of here is of this great story. And he goes on to say, for if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. For Paul to be in Christ is, as one commentator says, is to be compelled, to be claimed by the, the love of the cross is to be gripped by this story. And so I think what Paul is reminding us here is that the call of the Christian life is that we who live no longer live for ourselves. We who live no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again for us. Or in the words of Jesus, that we should take up our cross and follow him. And we see this call throughout Paul's letters. This call to take up your cross, to imitate the life of Jesus. To imitate the life of Paul because he is trying to imitate Jesus in his own ministry. A life of death. A life of participating in this way of the cross. 
that we would no longer hold on to anything, that we would relinquish anything that might have its grip on us, that would cause us to hesitate, cause us to pause, to participate and to imitate the action of God in Jesus Christ. One of death and resurrection. That we would participate in this, this amazing story. That we who live no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. What story has gripped you? There's a story in the early church of a woman named Perpetua. She was in her early 20s and a recent mother. She was arrested for her faith in Jesus. And she's waiting in jail to the time in which she will be martyred. And her father comes to her to plead with her to encourage her to renounce her faith, to change her mind for the sake of her family, for the sake of her child, for his sake and her mother's sake. And she says to her father, Father, do you see this vase lying over here? Or water pot or whatever it may be. And her father responds, yes, I do. And she says, can it be called anything other than what it is? And he says, no. And she says, so neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. The story of Jesus Christ's love has gripped her, has compelled her to the point where she understands herself in light of this story, understands herself in light of Jesus' death in resurrection, that she is fundamentally something new, that she is a Christian. Perhaps another way of looking at this is that what Paul is naming throughout his ministry, what Paul is naming here and encouraging us to live into by saying, for anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, is that the weight of the cross needs to be carried with both hands. That the weight of the cross is so great that we can't hold the cross in one hand. We can't be gripped by the story of the one who died for all, and therefore all have died on one hand, and anything else in the other. That we can't be gripped and hold the cross in one hand, and hold on to the sense of our identity in our career or in our degrees in the other. That we can't hold on to the cross in one hand and our individualism and consumerism in the other. That we can't hold on to the cross in one hand 
and a vision for this world through broken political systems in the other. That we can't hold on to the cross in one hand in any sense of security or comfort in anything under the sun in the other. That we can't hold on to the cross in one hand and hold on to any sorts of rights or privileges as the citizen of this nation or this world in the other. But that the weight of the cross is so great, the invitation to participate and live in Christ is so great that it needs both hands. And yet, what God promises us and confirms in Christ is that in carrying our cross, we are made new. That in embracing our death, there is new life. That there is a new vision, a new creation. And this message we proclaim in the waters of baptism. This is what is sealed upon us, this participation in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is sealed upon us when we go down into the waters and we come back out, that we die with Christ and that we are raised with Christ, that we are something new. And yet Paul says it's not that we're just something new. That we don't just have a new vision, that we don't just see things in a new way, but that we become something new by the grace of God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, what Paul is drawing out here is that there is this action of God which leads to something new for us. That there is this action, this movement, this initiative on God's behalf that has done something for us and invites us to find ourselves in that story, in Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul talks about this action of reconciliation. That it's not we who are coming to God. It's not that we are coming to God asking for mercy. It's not that we are coming to God seeking to be reconciled. It's not we coming to God asking for forgiveness, but it's God coming to us. God has reconciled us to himself. And this is drawn out throughout this last little bit of chapter 5. That he died for all. In order that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised on their behalf. That he died 
In order that this, that God reconciled us to himself through the Messiah and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God in the Messiah reconciled the world to himself, not counting their transgressions, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting us with this message of reconciliation. All this, because of this, this moves us to this great statement by Paul. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. We are something new. This entire section is headed here. And for the original hearers of this audience, this would tap into something that they knew was happening in the world around them. You see, the city of Corinth was a strategic city of economic and political implications. It was situated in a place where there was a lot of trade going through it, and it was what was called a senatorial province, which meant that the Senate in Rome sent ambassadors to Corinth every year to oversee it. That there were people from the Senate that were sent on the Senate's behalf to show up in the city to bring the rule and the reign of Rome into that place, to represent the interests of the Senate to the people. And Paul is drawing on this language, this idea, and saying this is who we are. This is who we are because we participate in this story. And by participating in this story in our lives, where we die and we rise, we bear witness to the world of God's reconciling activity. That God has reconciled us. God has reconciled the world to God's self. And so we implore people. We beg people through our lives that they would participate in this story as well. That they would be made new. That they would find their selves in this love that is so compelling. About a week ago, or earlier this week, we celebrated uh, my son's third birthday. And uh, he, like all three-year-olds, likes to ask questions. His favorite question, though, is, what's that? We're reading a book at night, and he points to things. Dada, what's that? What's that? We're driving down the road and he sees something that's interesting or something he doesn't recognize. What's that? What's that? He's trying to put language. He's trying to name and to identify things. And when we as the church participate, when we live in Christ and our new creations, when we live into this calling to be Christ's ambassadors, I believe that there is nothing that the world can do besides say, what's that? 
What's that? Christ's ambassadors. And so Mars Hill, what's that? A Christian. What's that? Christ's ambassador. What's that? A tiny picture, a little window of this new creation that is breaking forth all around us because of God's activity. And Mars Hill, what's that? Well, that is the Feast of Reconciliation. It's a tiny window. It's a little picture of the new creation. It's the feast that proclaims what Paul proclaimed to the Corinthians, that one died for all, and therefore all have died. And that those who die should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again for them. It's the feast that proclaims that God does not wait on our initiative to be reconciled, but that God takes the initiative. God runs from the front steps of the porch towards the wayward children that are coming up the road. God takes the initiative and runs out to the field, leaving the party, going to the elder child who stands in burning judgment to come back and to participate in the celebration. It's the feast where we implore others on Christ's behalf through Christ's sacrifice to be reconciled to God. And importantly, it's the feast that responds to the question, what's that? With a Christian, Christ's ambassador, the body and the blood of Christ. And so, Marcel, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so we pray. Holy and right it is in our joyful duty to give you thanks and praise at all times in all places, O gracious and merciful God. For you created the heaven in all its glory and creation in all its beauty. And you demonstrated the fullness of your love in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect Word made flesh, to reconcile us to yourself. And for this gracious gift, we bless and adore your name. And we say, thank you, Lord. And so together with churches all around the, the world, we proclaim the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. And so send your Holy Spirit, we pray, 
that the bread that we break and the cup that we bless would be to us the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that in receiving these gifts, we would attain the unity of our faith and that we would be found in Christ, that we would be made new. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after they had feasted together, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The blood of, of the new promise, of the new creation. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so whenever we come to this table and we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so Mars Hill, come taste and see. Come taste and experience the compelling love of Christ made physical for us in this meal. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. All things are ready.